Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Yep. yep. It's uh, very nice to see you, and you're here bright and early. It's fantastic. Just to introduce myself very briefly, uh, I'm David Smith. I held the chair of pharmacology. I was privileged to hold the chair in pharmacology in this university for 21 years, and I retired five years ago. And that gave me a chance to do full-time research instead of part-time research. So I'm still very busy uh, tackling the challenge of Alzheimer's disease. So what's in common with these two people on different sides of the Atlantic Ocean? I'm sure you know. Sadly, they both developed Alzheimer's disease uh, towards the end of their lives and uh, died um, uh, relatively early because of Alzheimer's disease. <coughs> Iris Murdoch was, of course, an Oxford um, person, an alumni, and lived here for most of her life. And sadly, she developed the disease and became one of our patients in the Op Optimus study. So is this a, an arrogant title? How to prevent Alzheimer's disease, you might be thinking. How can you prevent a disease like that? It's terrible. Um, it's irreversible. Let's just look at the challenge first of this disease, which, as you've probably seen in the recent uh, press, um, the worldwide challenge in terms of cost. Let's look at it in this country alone. Each year in the United Kingdom, about 350,000 elderly people develop what's called cognitive impairment. That's a, not a serious, uh, not an illness. It's just forgetfulness, memory problems usually, leave your keys behind, and you notice it, your wife or husband notices it, but it's not very serious. On the other hand, unfortunately, we now know that about half of the people who develop it will eventually develop dementia. And in fact, the numbers for dementia separately assessed are quite alarming, aren't they? 500 a day new cases. Did you know that? I expect most of you didn't. And the cost of this, apart from the human tragedy, the cost to the country is absolutely phenomenal. It's roughly 20% of the health service budget. Of course, it's not paid by the health service. It's largely paid by Social Security and, sadly, by the families. But this cost is far in excess of the cost of heart disease, stroke, and cancer. In fact, it exceeds all those combined. That's because of the, f the fact that the disease goes on for many years and the patients need a lot of care. So let's just think about it. Each year, 185,000 elderly develop dementia, mainly Alzheimer's disease, the commonest form of dementia. What I want to show you today is that research is the only possible way to meet this challenge. You can't meet it by social changes, by politics, by economics. It's got to be research. We've got to understand the disease if we're going to prevent it. And what I'm going to show you today is some hopeful signs that we might be getting a bit closer. Um, at the background of what I'm going to say is quite a bit of work, not all of the work I'm going to talk about by any means is done here, but uh, we, we founded this project in 1988. Elizabeth King, a nurse, Kim Jobs, a young doctor, Margaret Asiri, professor of neuropathology, and myself founded this project in order to study people suffering from Alzheimer's at the same time as studying normal volunteers. So we felt it was very important to compare normal aging with the process of dementia and follow people through until they died and then we asked them in advance of course if they would donate their brains for the research and 90% um, did that. So we have the, one of the world's best collections of clinical observations and um, brains on this uh, topic of aging and Alzheimer's. So it's been going 22 years. In 1988, very little was known about Alzheimer's disease. You could hardly diagnose it accurately, so we've come a long way. What is Alzheimer's disease? That's the question that people always ask me. And the two commonest uh, statements or questions to me and to other people in the field is, isn't it just an inevitable part of aging? We all get it if we live long enough. 
In fact, in this university, we had a tremendous debate with Carlton Geidersek, who won the Nobel Prize many years ago for his work on slow viruses, which we now call prions. Um, he said, it's inevitable, we'll all get it. And I said, no, it's not. And we had this debate at Balliol, I remember, in the master's lodgings. It was great. Um, he wouldn't uh, concede. So that's one view, that it's an inevitable part of aging. But the other view is, anyway, anyway, it's all in the genes, isn't it? Well, if these two things are true, then what hope have we got of preventing it? What I'd like to tell you today, and I haven't got time to show you the evidence, most of it, they are both myths. They're not true. So, if they're not true, what can we do about it? Just to show you one little bit of evidence that Alzheimer's is a true disease, here is an MRI scan, a slice through the brain, showing a particular part of the brain called the medial temporal lobe. I don't know whether I can get this to work. They never work when I want them to. Anyway, uh, um, which is, you, you can see the, on the right-hand one, some, some uh, marks, uh, digital calipers they're called. That's outlining the, the medial temporal lobe. That's a small part of the brain. It's only 2% of the cerebral cortex, but it's absolutely vital to our normal functions because that's where all memories come in and go out. So that's a normal 74-year-old uh, brain scan. And here is a person about the same age, same sex and everything, who has developed Alzheimer's disease. You can see that these medial temporal lobes, the structures that are just marked, I think one and two on, on there, uh, are much thinner. And there's a lot, of, a lot of brain tissue. So if you're looking at these scans and not familiar with them, the white and gray is brain tissue and the black is fluid. And in the, the one on the right, the Alzheimer's patient, there's an awful lot of black because there's a lot of fluid in the cerebral ventricles because the brain tissue has disappeared, degenerated, as we say. It's a true disease. And we really established that in Optima back in the early 1990s. Oh, that's showing the medial temporal lobe, so that's what I've been talking about. Uh, what we did, we measured the thickness of the medial temporal lobe using CT scans in those days, but the same principle as the MRI. We measured the thickness, that di distance between the two arrows and in the uh, plot. Uh, in a group of our subjects, there were 75 of them actually in this uh, particular report, um, against their age. So this is cross-sectional study, 75 different people of different ages, and we measure the thickness of the medial temporal lobe. And you can see it seems to be getting thinner as we get old. So we are losing a bit of brain tissue, but not that fast, 1.5% per year in this case. But when we measured the same in people with Alzheimer's disease, that's what we found. A fantastically different rate of shrinkage of this part of the brain. It was actually 10 times as fast as normal aging. So we felt that this is obviously not an inevitable part of aging. It's some kind of true disease process that hits or, dis or attacks this part of the brain um, and starts off the process of degeneration of the nervous tissue. Excuse me. When yeah. you say 15% a year, do you mean each year 15% of what? It yes. 185? Yes. yes. Do you mean 15% of 85? Yes. Yeah. So, so, of course, if you do it over several years, you've got to allow for that. Yeah. So, uh, it's not an inevitable part of aging. That's only part of the evidence, of course. Um, it's the consequence of a true disease. And it's very rarely purely genetic. I want to reassure you about this. There's a lot of myths around about this. You know, people write to me and often emails and, and say, you know, my, my brother's had it or my uncle's had it or my mother's had it. And I'm worried and I ask them, what age did the, your relative develop the disease? And the good news is, if they develop the disease over the age of 65, we can honestly say that we know of no genes that will determine that you get the disease if, you, if it starts over the age of 65. There are genes that influence it, as I'll show you in a minute, but they don't determine that you will get it, absolutely. The only genes that determine that you'll get Alzheimer's are those for the so-called early onset form, which can start in the late 50s. 
and it's very tragic, of course, because it's early onset. But they're very rare. They really are. Maybe 1% of all patients have this genetic cause. But the important thing that we've realized in the last few years is that the disease process occurs over many years, slowly and slowly and progressively developing over many years, maybe about 25 years, before the dementia itself actually expresses itself. So here's some diagrams showing you the process of this disease. Here's a picture of the human brain um, colored red to show you where the pathological signs of Alzheimer's are found in someone with dementia. You can see the medial temporal lobe with the black arrow there in the middle of the brain. It's got the densest, so the, the, the darker the red, the denser the pathology. And um, this is the sort of picture you get with someone who sadly has, has got, really got serious dementia. So the pathology is spread through a large part, but not the whole of the brain. There are certain parts that are spared. About five years before that, you get this picture. You still get pathology in the medial temporal lobe, but you're going to get a small amount in the uh, temporal and frontal cortex, these parts that are sort of browny, um, red. But these people have some degree of cognitive impairment or memory impairment. They don't have fully developed Alzheimer's. So you've got this five-year period when you convert from cognitive impairment to dementia. Then there's a long time, quarter of a century or so, uh, when the brain shows just in the medial temporal lobe a little bit of pathology, not much, but definitely detectable, but doesn't reveal itself in any obvious symptoms. No tests that we have done can do reveal any symptoms in people like that. So this is long period of 25, 27 years between, if you like, sort of normal and cognitive impairment. And then there's going backwards to, to youth, uh, there's a period of about 16 years when um, there's very, very little pathology found in the brain, just a little smidgen in the medial temporal lobe. So this long process, I must stress. Well, actually, that's a very, very interesting question. I don't know whether you know a bit about these things. Um, the, the standard answer used to be we really can't find anything. But um, some beautiful studies on Iris Murdoch's writing uh, by Peter Garrard, who's now in, in Southampton, um, found that very early on in the, in the books, long before she expressed the symptoms of dementia, her ability to express things and her use of words was, was a bit more limited than it had been in the first books. The reason I ask is because I know somebody who's been Yeah, yeah, well, you're very right. We, we, we found also ourselves in Optima that studying people over 20 years, um, when they were recruited as normals, if you keep on asking questions, we go on for ages, but anyway, <laughs> I love your questions. So we recruited them as controls volunteers in, in 20 years ago, and we followed them through, and sadly some of them have developed dementia. Um, and we found, looking at the cognitive tests that we did 20 years ago, that's exactly what we found. The ability to express themselves was, a, was already a little bit limited. And in fact, it was, we were able to predict exactly when they would develop dementia. Not exactly, but within a couple of years, from the degree of impairment of, of expressive abilities uh, earlier in life. So this is very new stuff. It has we have published it, but it's um, suggestive that that's one of the signs we should look out for. But most people wouldn't notice it in normal life. It doesn't affect your normal life. Good question. Anyway, <coughs> I want to stress then that Alzheimer's pathology develops slowly over many years until some kind of threshold is reached, which you saw, which leads to cognitive impairment. And the big question I want to ask today, can we use this time window to slow down progression of the disease? That's the big question. So just to put it in a sort of schematic way, what causes Alzheimer's disease? I've said inherited genes are very rare cause, perhaps 1% of cases, the common Alzheimer's disease is caused by a combination of two types of risk factor, the non-genetic risk factors and the genetically determined risk factors. Now, genetically determined isn't the same as saying that you have a gene which will make you have Alzheimer's. Genetically determined risk factors are common mutations in genes in the population. 
So I'm sorry to tell you that about 25% of you in the room have a mutation in a particular gene for the protein, apolipoprotein E, which will increase your probability of developing Alzheimer's disease by a factor of three to four. 25% of you. So it's an increased risk. But you know, three to four increased risk is not huge. I mean, it's significant, highly significant statistically. But you know, if you go out in the street and, and uh, get on your bike, you, you've got a sort of, I think it's 12-fold greater risk of being injured than if you walk. And if you ride a motorcycle, you've got a 168-fold greater risk of being injured. So you know, in everyday life, we're dealing with risks rather bigger than that. But this is important risk. It tells us something about the mechanism. But what about the non-genetic risk factors? Because these are essentially, in theory, modifiable. These are not in our genes. They're something in the environment. So let's have a look at the postulated non-genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And I say postulated, not proven yet. Lots of you know, hypotheses around there, and you'll read them in the newspapers from time to time. But I'd like to put them together to sort of give you a feel for what's been proposed over the last 10 or 15 years. This is a relatively new field. It's perhaps 15 years old. So here's a group of postulated risk factors that include prior head injury, low social activity, low education, deficiency in the two sex hormones, either men or women, obviously, low cognitive activity, and lack of eating fish or omega-3. These are all you know, interesting. We'll talk about one or two of them later. Then there's another group of postulated non-genetic risk factors that I put in red here. Now have a look at those. Is there anything about those that's familiar? Anyone see something about those that you've heard about in another context? Well, they're all, exactly, they're all risk factors for heart disease and stroke. And this is probably one of the biggest surprises in the Alzheimer's field in the last 10 years. Alzheimer's always used to be thought to be a specific disease of the brain quite different from the vascular type of dementia. Well, it is pathologically different, but it turns out that the same risk factors for vascular disease and vascular dementia are also found to be risk factors for Alzheimer's as defined pathologically. So this is fantastically good news. Look at it. You know what's happened to heart disease and stroke in the last 50 years in, in Western, well, developed countries. The incidence has gone down by 50 to 60%. That's a fantastic medical achievement. It's not often written about or said. Why has it gone down? Largely because we've recognized risk factors and we do something about them. The most important, of course, is smoking, but high blood pressure, cholesterol. What's oxidative stress? Oxidative stress is, is when the body uh, produces too many free electrons or so-called free radicals. Um, it's a very technical term, I'm sorry about that, but vitamin E is, is something that's supposed to suppress it. Um, that's a bit more controversial. Well, many, some of these are controversial, but most of these, as you can see, like physical activity and, and obesity and atherosclerosis and things, these are well-known uh, factors. So I think that's a very good sign that we know that modifying certain risk factors for heart disease and stroke will greatly reduce the incidence of these diseases, what about trying to see if we can do the same for Alzheimer's? And I'm going to show you some of those um, studies. But if you think about those, go back to them, look at them again, a large number of them, not quite all of them, of the postulated non-genetic risk factors are related in some way to our lifestyle. So how good is the evidence for this? Because we can, of course, change our lifestyle. It needs willpower. But how good is the evidence? Well, you know, it's a vast field, and I've got to keep my eye on the clock. Um, so I've just selected a few topics today, which I will go through fairly fast, but please ask questions at the end. Just to give you a flavor for the current knowledge in the field and the problems, it's not straightforward. There are problems of interpretation. So these are the topics I'll be looking at. Let's look at the estrogens first. The story about the estrogen started in the 1990s when there were several reports in the medical literature that women who took hormone replacement therapy had a lower incidence of dementia. Sounded great. So lots of more women started taking HRT because they wanted to avoid dementia. There's a bit of a worry there. There's something in observational epidemiology, that's what this is, 
that's called confounding. You make an observation of something in, in your life, like taking HRT and an end result, dementia or heart disease or whatever. You must not draw a conclusion that one is causing the other. It's just a hypothesis that they're related. The reason is that there may be other factors that, in women who take HRT which are actually protective. And that's what turned out to be the case. It turned out, when people analyze this carefully, that actually there was confounding by education. The women who took HRT were, in general, m more highly educated than those who didn't. And if you allowed for that, there was no protective effect. That was very controversial, and people didn't like it because they liked to have a simple story. Anyway, in, in 2002, one of my uh, research students, Aif Hogerborst, who's now a professor at Loughborough, she did a case control study in our patients and controls. That means you take blood from the people with a definite diagnosis of Alzheimer's and people who volunteered as controls and found uh, she was looking at estradiol levels. The hypothesis was that estradiol, which is one of the estrogens, the levels will be lower in people with Alzheimer's. And it wasn't. It was higher. Completely the opposite of what we'd expected on the basis of the HRT story. Uh, you know, when you find something like that, it's, well, not disturbing, but it's challenging. And you try everything to make sure you've done it right, you've done the measurements right, everything, no, no confounding. And you try and publish it. And it's difficult to publish, because the dogma of the time was, oh, estrogens are protective. This can't be right. Something wrong with the Oxford study. We did get it published, but it took two years. That's, that's my life. You know. If you find something un unusual, it's difficult to publish it. Anyway, she did a, a Cochrane review. Cochrane reviews are the very authoritative um, studies um, um, in 2002 also, where she reviewed all the world's literature on HRT and estrogens and everything. And she concluded, or they concluded, it was her and another person from another country, that HRT or estrogen replacement therapy, as they use in America, for cognitive improvement or maintenance is not indicated for women with Alzheimer's disease. So certainly in people who've got the disease, they shouldn't take it. That was a conclusion from their study. And then a year later, there was a big American trial where they found something quite alarming. They found that people taking estrogen plus progestin therapy, women, of course, increase the risk for dementia in those who were over 65 when they started the treatment. It was a modest increase. You could say 23 cases per 10,000 women per year they're taking the, the treatment, but highly significant and enough to give us uh, the recommendation that hormone replacement therapy is not indicated in women over 65. Since then, in fact, in a follow-up for this trial, it's been found that the same relationship occurs with hormone replacement therapy and heart disease and stroke. It increases the risk. So if you're over 65, and not many of you are in this room, I know, uh, don't, don't go on HRT or stop it around the age of 65. Let's move on to blood pressure, uh, cardiovascular risk factor, of course. Uh, high blood pressure is a strong risk factor for heart disease and particularly for stroke. What about Alzheimer's disease? Well, we can summarize this, or it's been summarized in a review, that midlife high blood pressure or hypertension is a strong risk factor for the later development of Alzheimer's disease up to 25 years later. So here's an example of this long process of going on in the disease. On the other hand, late life, very high blood pressure may also be a risk, but it has to be very high. Whereas in the very old, those over 80, it's low blood pressure that's the risk. So we get this sort of change over around the age of 80. Midlife, 40s and 50s, all, like all of you in here. Um, so what I want to show you is something very striking, that if you treat your high blood pressure in middle life, it will actually help prevent Alzheimer's disease later. Here's a lovely study from Honolulu, the Honolulu Aging Study, where they studied people for more than 15 years and looked at the risk of them developing Alzheimer's over that period. And um, they set the risk at, at one, if you like, for those not with high blood pressure, these are all people with high blood pressure who were not treated um, compared with the people who did not have high blood pressure, so-called normotensive, on the right. 
and you can see there's a huge difference. Those with high blood pressure had a, a threefold greater risk of developing Alzheimer's than those with normal blood pressure. But what was very interesting about this study was they had a lot of people, some couple of thousand, and so they were able to look at people who had their high blood pressure treated over time. And here it is. This is the duration of the antihypertensive treatment, drugs against blood pressure. And you can see that those who were treated from zero to five years, they, their risk was already reduced quite a bit. But those who were treated for more than 12 years, their risk was almost as low as those who had no high blood pressure at all. This is a really striking study, and I like the fact that it's sort of related to time of exposure to the antihypertensive treatment. Yes, in short. Vascular dementia is much rarer, actually, but um, it, it's almost certainly now, certainly the blood pressure. What about other vascular risk factors, since we've started talking about them? Um, some, this may be a bit technical for you, but this is expressing the odds of developing dementia 21 years later from people who were examined at the age of 50. So at the age of 50, they measured their base, um, BMI, and that's basically how fat you are. And if you're over 30, then your class is obese. Measure the systolic blood pressure and the blood cholesterol. And each of these independently increased the risk, or more or less doubled it, um, if, uh, compared with people who had normal levels. So this is quite significant because it's done in a large number of people. What was particularly interesting was they then looked at people who had one, more than one of these risk factors, and they found that they were additive. So people with uh, two of these risk factors, either um, obese and cholesterol or obese and systolic blood pressure, had about a threefold increased risk of dementia. And people who had all three of these risk factors had a sevenfold increased risk of developing dementia 21 years later. Okay, the message is getting clear, I hope. Now, one of the big discussion points is diet. The great thing about diet is that everyone eats and everyone thinks that they have a very healthy diet. Uh, so you can look at dietary patterns in people. It's a bit sort of complicated, but I'll try and make it a bit simple. Here's a very recent study from America where they looked at a dietary pattern in relation to the risk of Alzheimer's disease developing over the following 14 years. So these are what are called survival plots. So this is the survival without Alzheimer's. So the higher up on the, on the plot, the better you are. And the lower down, uh, the more Alzheimer's you develop. So you can see over 14 years, this population of 2,000 elderly, you know, quite a few of them developed Alzheimer's. But there was a striking difference, highly significant statistically, between those who adhered very strictly to a diet where there was plenty of fish, plenty of fruit, vegetables, nuts, tomatoes, and poultry, but where the diet was actually low in high-fat dairy products and red meat. So this is a dietary pattern. Okay, can you see that? We're not picking up any individual item, we're saying this is a pattern and there was a highly significant difference. The better you adhere to this kind of diet, the less risk of developing Alzheimer's. If you look at that, it's very similar, some of the factors to the Mediterranean diet. And the same group did another study on adherence to the Mediterranean diet, as <coughs> traditionally defined. And again, they found that those who strictly adhered to the Mediterranean diet uh, were relatively protected against developing Alzheimer's compared with those who adhered very poorly. So this is an important um, result. No, yeah. It says 77 years. Does that mean there were 77 when you started when, the test? When they started. Uh, no, sorry, I'm not sure when it was. Yeah, I think it was when they started in this case. So they get, got quite old. They got into their mid 80s. Um, uh, Never understood why Mediterranean people are a great diet but are much heavier smokers. Yeah. You have to, of course, all these plots, <laughs> there's a lot of information behind. They have to allow for smoking, they have to allow for education and other known risk factors, so it's a good point, yeah. But if you allow for that, that's what you find. So let's have a look at a bit more detail at what's in the Mediterranean diet that might protect us from Alzheimer's disease. Well, 
I'm, I'm using their data and I've plotted it on a graph. I hope that makes it a bit easier. I'm not sure it does. And I've made the gray is, is people who don't adhere very well to a Mediterranean diet. The, the turquoise is those who are sort of reasonably well adhering, and the yellow is those who adhere to it very well. Now, for a Mediterranean diet, of course, it's low in dairy and low in red meat. So the, the plots go down like that. So you should eat little of these uh, according to the Mediterranean diet. But if you look at vegetables and fruit, you can see it's the other way around. Mediterranean diet is very rich in fruit and vegetables, uh, the yellow. And those, uh, obviously, the higher the fruit and vegetable intake, um, it it's, uh, protects you against Alzheimer's, as, as I showed you just now. Then let's look at fish. Oops. Um, I must have missed one out. If you look at the fish one, you will see that the yellow is quite high in the fish, relatively. These are obviously relative uh, numbers. And we did a study in, in a Norwegian population, um, Helga Ressam and I and colleagues of 2,000 on elderly, where we um, measured various cognitive tests in relation to the amount of fish that they were eating. Now this was in, in oh sorry, no wonder, it's not, I forgot. It's not fish. This is fruit and vegetable intake. Okay, so we did this with fruit and vegetable intake. Sorry about that. And you can see that there's uh, a dose relationship. The more fruit and veg you eat, up to a level of about half a kilogram, 500 grams a day, you score better in your memory test. Okay? So that fits with the findings from America. Sorry about the mix-up. Here we are, fish now. Here's the fish. And you can see that the yellow is a um, high Mediterranean diet has got a lot of fish and there's a lot of work on fish and, and Alzheimer's which you may have read about. Uh, one thing I can tell you is the evidence suggests that saturated fats and trans fats do increase the risk of dementia. Prospective studies, that means studies done on populations who are not demented, who are followed through until they show dementia, uh, su suggests that fish intake does protect against cognitive decline and incident Alzheimer's disease. And we found a dose-related protective effect of fish intake in several cognitive domains, and that's the plot I was starting to talk about. Here we measured the fish intake in 2,000 elderly people, um, or we asked them to tell us what their fish intake was from questionnaires. And this is a very interesting thing, because in the Hordaland province of Western Norway, out of the 2,000 people, only 43 said they never ate fish. You know, they're living on the coast, and they, they live on fish. Only 43 said they never ate fish, and their cognitive scores were dreadful. But, you know, we published this, but we're not claiming anything because they may have been, may have been an odd lot. <laughs> but what we have in the remaining uh, number of the 2,000, we have a very nice dose relationship. The more fish they were reporting eating, the better their cognitive test scores, up to about 80 grams a day. So, you know, think of that. That's a lot, quite a bit. That's an average. Oh, so we don't yeah. Have to every day. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we can't actually answer that, but this is this is an average over a week, you know. So uh, we did it per day just to make it more meaningful to you. So you can see it sort of reached the plateau around 75 or 80. Do we know that's related to the, um, the fish oil there because free or whether? Uh, very good question, and and uh, I'm coming on to that in a minute. But uh, uh, what we found in this study, we expected or thought, you know, from what people said, that this would be related to eating fatty fish. But it wasn't. Well, it was, but it was just as good with lean fish. There was absolutely no difference. So it's fish. And since you asked, mentioned omegas, here's some of the data on omega-3s. And, and here it's a bit controversial. There are inconsistent reports of whether or not people with Alzheimer's have low omega-3 levels in the, in the body uh, cells. And there are conflicting reports about whether dietary intake of omega-3 fatty acids is actually good or not. There's just one trial that's been published just very recently, a few weeks ago, where they did find a protective effect of omega-3 on memory loss. But it's only one, and it was, not a, well, it was significant, but not a big effect. So I think it seems sensible to eat more fish but to wait a little bit for results from more trials before recommending that you take omega-3 rich capsules or tablets. I did hear the other day on radio about omega-3. Is that 
Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Well, no, I mean, there aren't enough rigorous studies in relation to Alzheimer's, but the general uh, impression is in health factors, you know, like heart disease and everything, is that omega-6 is not too good. You, you, you need a certain amount, but if you have high omega-6 and low omega-3, it's not good for the system, but I wouldn't like to extrapolate that to Alzheimer's. Just to clarify the fish again. Yeah. Do you? Why? I haven't seen them, and personally, I, I think it's, I shouldn't worry, frankly, but that's a personal view. I'd like to see the evidence. There was a scare, oh, 15 years ago, uh, that women who were pregnant were advised not to eat too much fish because of the mercury levels in fish are relatively high uh, due to, unfortunately, to contamination of, of the seas and rivers and everything, but that's been greatly overdone. Um, it turns out that the levels are still remarkably low and unlikely to harm the, the fetus. Oh, don't start on mercury and fillings. <laughs> you can ask a question about that at the end, but let's start on that. Sorry, okay. Yeah. Um, finally, on the Mediterranean diet, we all know the great thing about the Mediterranean diet is they like their wine. And you would like to know, I guess, whether or not that helps protect you against Alzheimer's. Well, I can tell you a little story um, before. I shouldn't really do this because I'm going to run on. To... Anyway, I'm going to tell you the story. There was a beautiful paper um, showing that uh, people who drank red wine were protected against developing Alzheimer's. And this study was done in Bordeaux. <laughs> and what they did, they compared people living in the community who drank as much red wine as they do in Bordeaux with patients with Alzheimer's living in homes. Now, the t study was published, everyone got excited, and then some smart guy said, what about these homes? And he looked into it and he found that 80% of the homes actually banned alcohol. So, you know, this was an artificial thing. This was, you know, you, you found out that these people were not drinking much alcohol, so you thought that was because that's led to their Alzheimer's. Anyway, that's the story, but it's since been clarified, yes, a little bit of wine is good for you. And here's some evidence for that from our own work in Norway, again on this elderly population. We looked at foods rich in what are called flavonoids. And someone asked about oxidative stress. Flavonoids are natural antioxidants found in foods. And I'm delighted to tell you that we found that drinking tea up to nearly a litre a day is protective. Uh, these are co these are, this is a cognitive test score. But we found it for several cognitive tests. This is verbal fluency. And I'm also delighted to say that eating up to 10 grams of chocolate a day seems to be good for you. But no more. It flattens out. Uh, and as you can see, the relationship for wine, the dose relationship, is very striking. But sadly, it flattens out at 125 mils, which is a, a small glass of wine. Um, and thereafter, it's a plateau. And if you go much further, it comes down again, of course. Anyway, these, these are what we call in, in the field dose-response studies and they, they make you feel more convinced. There are still only cross-sectional observations. They're not trials proving that if you take wine, you will actually develop less Alzheimer's. But they're very suggestive of that, aren't they? No, unfortunately, we didn't ask them whether they, it was red or white. This questionnaire they had to fill in, um, and remember they were elderly, was something like eight, 18 pages long. They were given a week or so to fill it in, um, and they were offered help if they needed it. So, you know, we couldn't do everything. But we have a phenomenal amount of dietary data from this study, and we haven't finished analysing it all yet. I've lived in France for nearly 25 years. Uh -huh. I haven't found a French doctor yet to prescribe against <laughs> No. <laughs> I can understand that. Um, 
Now, another factor that I had on my early slide that we know is protective against heart disease and stroke is physical exercise. What about that and Alzheimer's? Well, here's another example from this. The Finns are very good at doing these studies, um, a Finnish study. And they asked 1,400 people at the age of around 50, or the average age was 50, how often do you participate in leisure time physical activity that lasts at least 20 to 30 minutes and causes breathlessness and sweating? That's pretty hard work, isn't it? And the, they defined as active those who answered twice or more a week and sedentary those who said less than twice a week. So this is quite a, you know, a sharp kind of cutoff. So what did they find? They found, looking at the risk of Alzheimer's 21 years later, that those who reported being active had a 65% reduction in the risk of developing Alzheimer's. Fantastic result but it's purely observational. So we have this confounding issue. Is it because people who are active in exercise have other qualities, more intelligent, more educated, better diet, or what? We don't know, but this, this is an observation that's crying out for sort of further study and tests, and luckily the tests have now been done. Uh, the, the extraordinary thing is that it turns out that if you carry out a bit of aerobic exercise, literally only 25, 30 minutes, and you do this regularly for a week, for three times a week for six months, parts of your brain actually get bigger. We don't know exactly whether that means the nerve cells divide or they produce more processes, but they get bigger. And it's the parts shown in yellow here, in, in uh, color, that actually got larger. And as you'll see later, the brain, of course, is the basic substrate for dementia. So getting a larger brain is a good thing. And then there's been a in Perth, in Australia, a very nice randomized trial of exercise. That's quite difficult to do, but they managed it. They took um, people with memory problems, mild memory problems, divided them into two, and gave one group fairly steady exercise, which was 20 minutes a day for six months, and the other group they just left to carry on their normal life. Uh, and they found a striking effect, that there was an improvement in the cognitive test scores of those who exercised for six months, and the improvement lasts for another 12 months after the end of the exercise period. This is the one and first trial of its kind, uh, but it's very suggestive and very promising, I think, that exercise actually objectively can increase um, cognitive abilities. Right. This is my own field, so I'm sorry it's going to be a bit long. There's an amino acid called homocysteine, which I'll tell you about in a minute, but I think you've all heard of B vitamins. So B vitamins, of course, we get in the diet. And those of you who read some newspapers might have seen this a couple of weeks back now um, in the Telegraph. Uh, less likely that you saw this in the Daily Mail, probably, but it was the whole front. Great thing, we actually pushed Wayne Rooney off the front page. He was no longer on the front page. <laughs> this was the whole front page, uh, that the headline in the article. So, um, And then the next week in the Daily Mail, there was a whole page article about this. And just to make it a bit more amusing, um, I did this study with Helga Ressam, a Norwegian professor, visiting professor here from Oslo. And I was in Oslo at the weekend, and the newspaper interviewed us and said they wanted to take a picture of us together, um, uh, you know, eating or doing something relevant to B vitamins. <laughs> they came to Helga's house and got her taking out a bottle of apple juice. <laughs> it's got folic acid in, of course, folate. Anyway, that's the sort of things that happened. The text they wrote was complete gibberish, but the picture is rather nice. <laughs> right, so what's all this about? It's about an amino acid. This is technical. If there's any chemists here, they'll immediately recognize it. Called homocysteine, which has got a reactive group, the group indicated with a red arrow, called a thiol group or sulfhydro group. Makes it reactive. It's found in the body, in the blood. It's found in cells in the body. And the fascinating thing about this amino acid is that raised levels in the blood, raised levels, moderately raised, and I mean moderate, 20 to 30% raised, are associated with the later development of all these diseases. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? You know, you know about cholesterol and salt and everything, but that's nothing compared with this molecule, this amino acid. So these are purely observational studies again. High levels associated with an increased risk of these diseases. 
Can you prove that it's causal? Well, that's a big challenge. The ones in red, of course, are the ones that we're interested in today, and these are the ones we discovered here in, in Oxford 12 years ago. Here's an example from Italy. I rather like it because it's dose-related. Here they had 816 people in the um, Bolgano area of Italy. Without any signs of dementia, they recruited them. They were average age about 74. They followed them up for nearly four years, and 112 developed dementia. It's pretty alarming, isn't it? Would you like to live there? There's something about this place that <laughs> makes me sort of worried. Out of 816, in four years, 112 developed dementia. Anyway, because of this large conversion to dementia, they were able to look at blood levels at baseline in relation to the development of dementia. And they measured this homocysteine in relation to the development of dementia. And you can see that the higher the homocysteine at baseline, the greater the risk of developing dementia. And it's a beautiful dose-response curve. And as I said earlier, dose-response curves in science are very important and convincing. And this is only one of many, many studies now of this, of this kind. So we looked at, uh, we said to ourselves, if homocysteine is a risk factor for Alzheimer's, how's it doing it? And one possibility is that it's actually damaging the brain directly. So we actually measured the volume of the brain or the, the rate of shrinkage of the whole brain over years in people where we had baseline homocysteine. And here's a group from 95 community elderly in Oxford who were recruited at the age of 77, average, without any cognitive impairment. We carefully screened them to say they were absolutely fine. Otherwise, we didn't exclude any. They may have had a heart attack or a stroke or whatever, but we just took them. The only thing we wanted was that they had no cognitive impairment at baseline. We followed them for uh, six years, and we scanned them every year with MRI scans. And Steve Smith here in the university is, is professor of biomedical engineering. About eight or nine years ago, developed the most wonderful software for subtracting one MRI scan from a previous one. And this is a, a very accurate. It's at the so-called subvoxel level, so it gives you it's an extremely accurate way of measuring the rate of shrinkage of the brain. And here we've plotted the um, rate of brain volume change, so it's getting smaller, minus, um, against the baseline level of this amino acid. You divide the levels into four, so the lowest quartile is the lowest levels, and the number four quartile, the top quartile, is the highest levels of homocysteine. You can see there's a dose-related effect. The higher the level of homocysteine, the more rapidly your brain is shrinking. Normal elderly. You. You're not elderly, but you know what I mean. Think about it. Something in the blood that seems to, and I say seems to, determine the rate at which the brain shrinks. Wow. Is that really true? Well, it's an association, but if it's really causal, that's really interesting. Why is it interesting? It's interesting because the blood levels of homocysteine are influenced by a lot of factors that we can control. The, the most striking and strongest factors are the levels of folate and B12 in our body. Also influenced by diet, in particular fruit and veg and fish. Fish is rich in B12 and fruit and veg in folate. Influenced by exercise, brings it down. Smoking puts it up. Coffee intake puts it up. Not too much, I mean, don't worry. Five or six cup, cups a day, I don't think most of us have that. And lifestyle in general. A bad lifestyle is associated with high homocysteine and a good lifestyle with low homocysteine. This was all done by Helga Ressam and her colleagues in Norway, pioneering work in the last 20 years. So here we have a molecule in the blood that seems to affect brain shrinkage and we can lower its level by folate and B12. So let's just go through this brain shrinkage. In normal elderly, the brain is, people over 60-ish, the brain is shrinking at about 0.5% per year. Might worry you, but I shouldn't worry too much. The areas in red here in this picture of the brain are those that shrink the most. Um, the areas in gray intermediate and the blue area really doesn't shrink at all. Now, it's very, very interesting, this, because these areas in red that shrink the most in the normal elderly are exactly the areas that show the Alzheimer pathology when people develop Alzheimer's, as I showed you right at the beginning. So you have to ask the question, is this shrinkage actually a disease process? Well, maybe it is. If you have mild cognitive impairment, that's 
a, a moderate, modest degree of memory impairment, but otherwise you're fine, you live in the community, no problems, then the rate of shrinkage is twice that, 1% a year. And if you sadly develop Alzheimer's, the rate of shrinkage is 2.5% per year. So many of us now think that there really is a continuum there. That one moves into the other. And if homocysteine is one of the factors that determines this, then if we lower homocysteine, can we prevent it? So we did a clinical trial which, with uh, Helga Efsom and Robin Jacomi, who was a uh, professor of old age psychiatry, um, which we started five years ago, and we just published it um, two weeks ago, and hence all the fuss in the newspapers. The question we asked was, do B vitamins slow the rate of brain atrophy in people with mild cognitive impairment, MCI? We recruited 270 community-dwelling people from the Oxford area. The only thing we wanted was they should be over 70 and they should have mild cognitive impairment as specified by a, a, a series of quite simple memory tests, which, some of which we even did on the telephone. This was a wonderful group of volunteers because quite a lot of them agreed actually to have MRI scans. Anyway, we, we what's called randomized these, these people so we split them half and half without knowing which we'd split, of course, and did it uh, blind, uh, to taking a placebo tablet or a tablet containing high doses, and they are high, of folic acid, B12 and B6. We treated them for two years, and for those who agreed and volunteered, not everyone did, and that was fine, it was voluntary, uh, we did MRI scans at the beginning and right at the end up to two years. And the study was what we call powered, we had enough statistical power to detect a 20% slowing of brain atrophy by the vitamins. That was fairly ambitious. But because we'd got this striking relationship between homocysteine and brain atrophy, we sort of thought it might be just about possible. So, remind, uh, remind you again, these B vitamins markedly lower the level of homocysteine in the body. Well, markedly, by 30%. That's why we're doing the study. That's why we're doing the study. Is it a cause or is it a symptom? Um, so, so these people were, as I say, treated with B vitamins to lower their homocysteine. It lowered the homocysteine by 31%. And we measured the rate of atrophy in the two groups. You can see in the groups that had placebo, there was still a strong relationship between baseline homocysteine and the rate of atrophy, really quite strong. So going from the bottom to the top of the normal homocysteine level, you had a four or five-fold difference in the rate of atrophy. But those treated with the B vitamins, absolutely no effect of baseline homocysteine. Abolished the effect. So we think it's causal, as you can understand. So looking at this in another way, we divided the baseline homocysteine into four groups, rather than just a continuous line, into quartiles, as we call it. I've had that before. And we looked at the rate of atrophy in these uh, quartiles for those in the placebo group and those in the treated. And you can see in the placebo group, those in the bottom quartile, the first quartile, there was no effect of treatment. In the second quartile, the atrophy was a little bit less. In the third, it was even more or less. And in the fourth quartile, it was 53% lower in the treated group, B vitamin treated, than in the placebo group. I have to tell you, this is a staggering effect. 53% effect of brain, on brain atrophy. And that's, we got excited, of course. So it's a dose-related effect, and it's a big effect. Here's an example of a couple of, of scans at the extreme. This is an MRI scan of one of our subjects who took a placebo. We didn't know that, of course, till the end. And um, again, the gray is the brain tissue, the black is the fluid, and in this case, the blue indicates the parts of the brain that have shrunk. And the brighter the blue, the turquoise basically, shows shrinkage of more than one millimeter per year. It's quite a bit when you think about it in volume terms. So this person's brain, uh, you can see around the ventricles, around the black area, was shrinking quite markedly, quite rapidly. And the average rate of shrinkage in this brain was 2.5% a year, which is at the top end of normal, very much top end of normal. 
uh, I've selected these two because this person's baseline homocysteine was at 22, which is pretty high, but it actually went up to 30 over two years. He must have had a bad lifestyle or something. We, we haven't investigated that. Um, but here's someone whose baseline homocysteine was pretty well the same, 24 in this case. He was on B vitamin treatment. The homocysteine went down to 12, and look at his rate of atrophy. There's just a little bit of blue in the top left ventricle there. And the average rate of atrophy was 0.46% per year. So there's a five-fold difference in the rate of atrophy between the placebo patient and the treated, one treated with B vitamins. Sorry? Yes, yes. The average for the group, I think, was, if I remember right, it was about 15 or 16, something like that. That's sort of fairly normal in the Oxford elderly. They're a pretty healthy lot here. Just up the road in Banbury, we've done another study. They're much worse. Their average homocysteine is about 18, and they have low folate and B12. It's just interesting how different environments affect uh, the health. Anyway, this, I hope, convinces you that we can control the rate at which the brain shrinks to some degree, obviously not entirely. So what are the outcomes of this trial? Well, the conclusion is that B vitamin treatment slows brain atrophy and mild cognitive impairment by up to 53%. The effect is greatest in those with a high baseline level of homocysteine, i.e. sort of relatively unhealthy people, lifestyle-wise. And the slower the rate of atrophy, the slower the decline in cognitive abilities. What are the possible implications here? Well, first I ought to say that, I don't know, that slide didn't get, uh, I, d I added something on that slide when it's not there, I must have put another file on the, um, on, the lap on the laptop. What I want to stress here is this trial has shown that it's possible to modify the disease process leading to Alzheimer's disease, right? That's never been achieved before. There have been about half a dozen big trials, mainly in America, of drugs designed to slow down the disease process, and they've all failed. And the last one to fail was uh, Eli Lilly trial that was stopped in August because the treatment made the patients worse. So this is actually the first trial that has actually shown that it is possible to slow down the disease process leading to Alzheimer's. Not Alzheimer's itself, but leading to it. So what are the possible implications? Well, mild cognitive impairment is common. The prevalence in Western countries is 16% of those over 70. And that means in the UK, there's about one and a half million people with mild cognitive impairment. And the problem is that 50% of these develop Alzheimer's in five years from diagnosis. So we need to do a trial now to see if B vitamins will slow or even prevent conversion from mild cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's. The question is, in the meantime, what are we going to tell patients or people diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment? Should they be offered B vitamins? This is a matter we want to, we're discussing with the medical profession, obviously. It's only one trial. You have to be careful not to change clinical practice at one trial. Well, I've said bit too much on my own project, but never mind. I hope you can let me go on a bit. Is that all right? Yeah. So the last topic I want to talk about is a popular one, is mental exercise and social activities. We have a concept of successful aging introduced by two American uh, scientists about 40 years ago. But Cicero thought of it long before then. Cicero said, the best end to life is with mind unclouded and faculties unimpaired, and we would certainly endorse that, wouldn't we? Well, it was Rowan Kahn, it wasn't 60 years ago, it was 1987, who, who identified or called or named a thing called successful aging. So they distinguished in normal aging between the so-called usual aging, which is most people, in which various extrinsic factors actually heighten the effect of aging alone, and successful aging in which the extrinsic factors play a neutral or positive role and you, you can continue to be you know, healthy and fit. The question is, how can we achieve successful aging? Well, of course, Cicero has all the answers. Um, exercise your mind, he said. He took up learning Greek at the age of 60 or something. Take up farming or gardening. There you are. That's what you should be doing. 
maintain your social activities? Wonderful suggestions. So the question is, what does modern research show on this topic? Cicero was right. <laughs> Here's a nice study from France showing, it's an observational study, but in that context it's showing that social and leisure activities do influence the development of dementia. So they found that the risk of developing dementia in this French elderly population living in Bordeaux uh, was, was halved for those who spent time on traveling, doing odd jobs, or knitting, or gardening. And if you do all three, your risk was reduced fivefold. Fantastic, isn't it? So out you go, get, some, get on traveling and gardening and knitting and all that. That's only one study, but there are lots of studies that support that. I like this one, a study done in Japan, um, where they picked patients with very mild Alzheimer's, not really seriously impaired at all, but they had a diagnosis, they'd just been diagnosed. And they were exposed to social and cognitive stimulation for 150 minutes, once a week for six months. Don't ask me what the stimulation was, I've forgotten. But <laughs> the great thing is that those who were exposed to this psychosocial stimulation, as they called it, their cognitive tests and I've showed two cognitive tests here, remained stable on the red. Whereas those who were not exposed to it, they declined, even over six months. So there does seem to be something in it. Here's a study from Chicago where they compared people um, who had high cognitive activity, in other words, did a lot of reading and maybe writing and uh, sort of intellectual activities, uh, with those who had low cognitive activity and followed them through for five years and they found again the risk of developing dementia was higher in those with low cognitive activity. So is it all about lifestyle? Well there's been a couple of articles in the last ten years or less than ten years asking this question. Is lifestyle important? So let's have a look at this. The question you must be dying to know the answer is is cognitive decline inevitable as we get older? Are we all going to, don't know. I don't think it is. I can tell you about some of our wonderful volunteers who came in 22 years ago, who are still alive at the, in the mid-90s, some of them, and their cognitive performance in tests is just the same as it was 20 years ago. Fantastic. Not many of them, but there are a few, and they're remarkable people. I think I'm allowed to say this because he was very open about it. The late Sir Richard Doll, our former Regis Professor of Medicine, was one of our volunteers. And he was passionately interested in our research and very supportive. And we followed him. He died, was it two years ago, the age of 95? Right until six months before he died, his cognitive scores were just as good as they had been when he came into the study at the age of 75. It was wonderful. And here was a man who maintained his intellectual activity right to the end. He was writing papers and doing very important studies right to the end. Anyway, so this is successful aging, people whose cognitive score remains stable. But in the usual, in the population as a whole, we have usual aging where there's a, a tendency to decline, as you well know. What I think and what a lot of us now think is that this usual aging is because within the successful aging population, there are a few people who have early disease process like Alzheimer's and that pulls it down. So what we need to do is to find the causes of the disease process and stick it to successful aging. So to conclude, what should we do to prevent Alzheimer's disease? First thing I have to stress is that we should do this in our midlife like all of you, you know, 40s and 50s. I'm not saying it's too late to do it when you're elderly but it may not have such a big effect, but I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't do it. There are three interventions that have been supported by clinical trials which have therefore got much more um, credence to them. Uh, the first one I talked about was to treat or prevent hypertension in midlife. Second one was to exercise regularly in midlife and indeed later, so you know, some of these are later. And the third one, the most recent one, is to keep your homocysteine level low and keep your intake of veg and fruit and fish up so you get a high level of folate and B12 in the body. I'm not saying this, but you will interpret this. Shall I go out and buy some folic acid and B12 tablets? That's a question you, you can discuss. All the others 
the evidence is suggestive, but not yet proven by trials. But it's pretty important. Avoid obesity in midlife. Control your cholesterol. Engage in activities that stimulate the mind and social activities. Stop smoking, very important. Eat plenty of fish, fruit and veg, or a Mediterranean diet. Consume modest amounts of alcohol. You must treat or prevent any diabetes. And as Cicero said, take up gardening, do odd jobs, and travel a lot. Whoops. So there we are. Thank you very much.